go to KUOW.org slash Speakers Forum. Well, thanks to every one of you for being here tonight, and a big thank you to Sage and the folks here at Elliott Bay Bookstore. We are so fortunate to have local independent bookstores uh, here in Seattle, uh, and Elliott Bay is just a wonderful, wonderful store. These stores not only connect us to books, but they connect us to one another, you know, with events like this and uh, a place where we can gather and bump into one another and share ideas. So they enrich our communities, and I want to uh, acknowledge that and, and, and give them a round of applause. Thank you. Now, I am often asked just how I got into this particular and peculiar line of work, this sort of combination of science and storytelling. And I would like to be able to stand here and tell you it was all part of my master plan and that I went to scientific storytelling school. Uh, but that's not the case. This is not something uh, that the guidance counselor uh, tells you to go into in high school. I have thought long and hard about how this all came about, and I think it boils down to one thing, curiosity. I don't know if you have ever spent any time around a four-year-old, but if you have, you probably know that the word why is a major portion of their active vocabulary. And there may be other aspects of my character that are also four, year, four years old, but that is certainly one of them. I can't stop asking questions. I'm a curious, curious person. And those questions and that habit led me very naturally to a career in science, where questions are the coin of the realm. And then on from there into writing, where I get to indulge myself and my curiosity by diving deeply into topics that fascinate me. And at the end of one of those projects, if I am very lucky, I end up in a room like this filled with people who are fascinated by the very same things that interest me. So thank you once again for being here. And I know because you are here indoors on such a beautiful summer evening that you are curious people just like I am. And you won't mind then if I begin with a question. Why bees? Why write a book on bees? Well, my interest in bees began back in graduate school when I was studying large rainforest trees down in Central America, and I had genetically fingerprinted all the adult trees of a particular species in uh, a particular landscape. And because of that genetic data, I could see very clearly that something was moving pollen among trees, way up there, out of sight in the rainforest canopy, not just between neighboring trees, but among individuals that were more than a mile and a half apart. And because the tree was a member of the pea family and had big purple pea flowers, just like the sweet peas or garden peas in your backyard, I knew that that something had to be bees. So I co-opted an entomologist friend of mine into joining me for a couple of weeks, and we hired uh, a field uh, assistant down there who was very handy with a crossbow. And he was shooting traps up into the rainforest canopy for us day after day, and we caught nothing. So those bees eluded us for that period of time. And I never learned, and nobody has yet learned, which species, or many species perhaps, of bees are moving pollen around 
among those trees, but we know it's happening. So that particular little project was a failure, but it sparked a fascination that wouldn't rest. And I have been looking for ways to chase after bees in my work and in daily life ever since. And like anyone interested in bees, I have been shocked and alarmed by the news headlines in recent years. From honeybee colonies collapsing and mass to the widespread declines of many bumblebees and other native species. But in reading those stories, I have noticed a certain mushiness about the subject matter. I mean, what do we really know of bees? Even the experts sometimes stumble over the details. Once, while listening to the radio and driving in my car, I heard a noted historian of science describing how early colonists arriving at Jamestown and Plymouth had brought honeybees with them from Europe. If they hadn't, he explained, there would have been nothing here to pollinate their crops. I almost drove off the road. What about the 4,000 species of native bees already buzzing happily around North America? Couldn't believe it. But that's not the worst of it. Given my interests, it won't surprise you to learn that in my office I keep a, a copy of the reference book Bees of the World. It is a, a nice hardcover edition written by a pair of very noted entomologists and published by a good nonfiction press. And the cover features a lovely close-up photograph of a fly. <laughs> so why bees? We need a book on bees. We need books on bees. Here in the 21st century, we find ourselves in the odd position of being more familiar with the plight of bees than we are with the bees themselves. Which means that the place to start in any exploration is the most basic question of all. What is a bee? Happily, I can share with you tonight an answer that is, that is both memorable and simple, but that does sum up all the major steps of bee evolution. A bee is a hippie wasp. It is a hippie wasp. Here's how it works. The first thing to remember is that wasps came first. They had been around for millions of years, and bees evolved from the wasps. They still look quite a lot like them, in fact, which is why the two groups are so often confused. But if you are being harassed at a picnic, and your attackers are swarming around the fried chicken or the roast beef or picking pieces of bologna out of your sandwiches, then don't blame bees. Your attackers are most certainly wasps. Because the key innovation that led to bees was dietary. Wasps are hunters and scavengers, constantly searching for fleshy protein to feed their larvae back at the nest. But bees gave up that lifestyle and began to provision themselves and their babies solely from the products of flowers. That switch set them apart, and soon their behavior and even their bodies began to change as a result, including the evolution of long tube-like tongues for drinking nectar, and the evolution of branched feather-like hairs specifically adapted for the transportation of pollen. <coughs> of course, there is nuance to the story. There are bees that are parasitic and aren't hairy at all. 
don't, bo don't even bother collecting pollen, and there are uh, wasps that like to visit flowers to drink the nectar. But in general, if you want to remember the basics of bee evolution, just remember that they are long-haired, flower-loving vegetarians. <laughs> the hippie wasps. Now, all of this evolutionary activity took place a long time ago. Bees have been with us for at least 120 million years. Since the middle of the Cretaceous period, a time famously dominated by the dinosaurs. But if you can look past those lumbering beasts for a minute to the vegetation, you will see something interesting. Conifers and ferns abound, but where are the flowers? Where are the flowers? You have to look pretty closely to pick out a couple of shrubby-looking things that might be able to produce a blossom. So it's not exactly a promising landscape for the evolution of insects that rely exclusively upon pollen and nectar. But the artist of that picture was spot on, because in the mid-Cretaceous, flowering plants were a rarity, bit players in a flora still dominated by cycads and ginkgos and other early seed plants. In fact, the sudden rise of flowering plants during the later part of the Cretaceous was long considered inexplicable, a strange and sudden transition visible in the fossil record. No flowering plants whatsoever, and then suddenly they were everywhere in the fossils. Charles Darwin famously called it an abominable mystery, a serious challenge to his concept of evolution as a slow process of incremental change. Rarely noted, however, is that in the same letter where Darwin made his famous mystery comment, he mentioned his correspondence with a French naturalist named Gaston de Saporta, who theorized that flowering plants did indeed evolve rapidly as a result of their interactions with flower-visiting insects like bees. Darwin didn't buy it, preferring to think that flowering plants must have evolved slowly somewhere else and then dispersed rapidly to the places where they became fossilized. Well, Darwin had the bigger reputation as well as the bigger beard. Uh, and his idea carried the day for decades until people finally realized that Saporta had been right all along. Uh, and that the co-evolution of, of flowers uh, and, and bees drove a huge and rapid diversification that is visible now anywhere from mountain meadows to rainforest canopies to the nearest flower market. But what is less well known is how the rapid diversification of flowering plants led in turn to an, an incredible diversity of bees, which range from the familiar, like this bumblebee, to the fantastic, like this iridescent sweat bee, to the downright strange, like this long-tongued specimen known only from the Atacama deserts of Chile. They can be uh, minuscule, like this little golden bee glued to the shaft of a pin, or massive, like this oil-collecting bee from Puerto Rico. And their colors can range from simple, like this leaf-cutter bee, to showy, to even surprising, like this blue-banded bee from Australia or this purple euglossine bee from French Guiana. And while it's true that many bees are fuzzy, like this longhorn specimen, they can also be smooth, 
like this blood bee or this shimmering orchid bee from South America. And while some bees may seem alarming, or at least certain parts of them, it's also true that in spite of their antennae and their faceted eyes, they can be what can only be described as cute. So the co-evolution of bees and flowering plants has led to great diversity on both sides of the equation. Now I've just shown you 16 different bees from around the globe. If we wanted to see all the world's bees, we'd be here for a long time. Let's say we kept at it the way we have been, about 10 seconds per bee. Well, at that rate, we would be here for two days, seven hours, and 30 minutes to get through the world's estimated 20,000 species of bees. More kinds of bees in the world than all of the birds and the mammals put together, and then some. Now, to put that into binge-watching perspective, that is almost, oddly enough, exactly the amount of time it would take us to watch every episode of the Game of Thrones back to back. And like Game of Thrones, even if we were to make it all the way to the end, we would probably still have a lot of unanswered questions. And that's because only a tiny fraction of the world's bees have ever been studied in detail. And perhaps thousands of species have yet to be discovered. It is entirely possible, perhaps even likely, that sitting here in Elliott Bay books in uh, the lowlands of western Washington, a well-studied landscape by any measure, we may be within a few miles of a bee unknown to science. How thrilling. So the story of bees, or at least our understanding of that story, is still very much being written. Many people are surprised to learn that bees are so diverse because when we think of bees, our, mind turn, our minds turn immediately to the one bee we know best, the honeybee. So social and so prolific, massing by their tens of thousands around a single queen. But honeybees are the exception. The vast majority of bees are solitary creatures. Diggers, miners, masons, wool carters, leaf cutters, and more. Building their nests alone in their tunnels and burrows or in hollow twigs. Sometimes in stems or even snail shells. Not to mention teapots, hose bibs, brick walls, or even cracks in the pavement. Many bees are tiny and hard to find, so it's not unusual for insights about them to come like support us, less through direct study than by an understanding of the dramatic ways that bees have influenced the world around us. And I'd like to illustrate that point with a passage from chapter four of the book, which begins with an epigraph by the British poet Norman Rowland Gale. You voluble, velvety, vehement fellows that play on your flying and musical cellos, come out of my foxglove, come out of my roses, you bees with the plushy and plausible noses. When Henry Wadsworth Longfellow called flowers so blue and golden, he probably wasn't thinking about the visual receptors in the eyes of bees. But the prevalence of those shades in his much-pondered blossoms was not a coincidence. 
They fall right in the middle of a bee's visual spectrum, and flowers adopt them specifically in a bid to woo bees as pollinators. The evolution of petal color tracks closely with a plant's strategy for getting its flowers fertilized. All the hues, from mustard to cornflower, would be exceedingly scarce and might not exist in flowers at all if there had been no need to advertise for the services of bees. Purple would also be rare, though there would still be a few perky splashes of red to attract nectar-loving birds. Scent is also a common bee-related trait, and Walt Whitman made a fine, if unintended, biological observation when he pined for a beautiful flower garden, quote, odorous at sunrise. Many floral fragrances do indeed surge during the morning hours, just as temperatures rise and hungry bees become active, seeking out flowers that have filled with nectar overnight. For plants, it's a perfect pollination opportunity and a ripe moment to advertise. If there were no bees in the equation, Whitman might have timed his walk for a moonlit night to get a good whiff of the cloying perfume given off by moth-pollinated flowers. Or he might never have considered a walk through a, a garden in the first place, since the majority of blossoms would reek of the musky terpenes and rotten flesh smells that are attractive to wasps and to flies. The fact that bees prefer odors and colors we find worthy of poetry counts as one of nature's happier accidents. Beyond color and smell, the very shapes of many flowers can also be traced to bees. While round blossoms generally appeal to all sorts of pollen and nectar seekers, bees included, most of the more elaborate flowers evolved with specific visitors in mind. From an insect's perspective, round blooms, uh, round blooms can be approached from any angle or direction. It's a sort of come one, come all display that often draws a crowd. If Claude Monet had included pollinators in his sunflower still lifes, he would have found himself busy adding in all manner of bees, as well as hoverflies, bee flies, butterflies, wasps, and beetles, all attracted to those wonderful sunflower blooms. Flowers that diverge from round, however, can be more choosy in whom they choose to invite. And where they deposit their pollen, the wide banners of a pea flower or the lipped tube of a snapdragon display what is called bilateral symmetry, a concept that is also familiar from the shape of the human face. If you draw a line down the center, from top to bottom, one half is a mirror image of the other. For flowers, this design creates clearly defined sides as well as a distinct sense of up and down, requiring their visitors to enter in a specific way. Once that feat is accomplished, flower parts can develop all sorts of adaptations for dabbing pollen in particular places on insects of a particular size and shape. But plants can only afford such a focused approach if their pollen is likely to stick to their intended targets, which makes bees with their pollen-attracting fuzz, by far the most common callers at such blooms. Compared to his sunflowers, Monet would have found painting pollinators on his yellow irises a cinch, since bumblebees are virtually the only insects capable of getting the job done. With their deep tubes and upright orientation, irises force the bees to land on a designated platform and pass beneath a broad, pollen-laden stamen placed, as one expert charmingly described it, to fit exactly the dorsal surface of the humble bee.
The female parts are there too, ensuring that the bee will deposit that pollen in just the right location on the next iris it comes to. So much of what we take for granted when we look at a flower boils down to the preferences of bees. And flowers, in turn, have altered the bodies and abilities of their buzzing visitors, from fuzziness and tongue length to distinctive bee habits of memory and navigation. And should anyone in the room doubt just how tight these bee-flower relationships can be, look no further than the blossoms of the genus Ophrys, the bee orchids, whose petals have taken on the very shape and texture and color of the insects they hope to attract, and who go so far as to produce the particular pheromones, the chemical odors of a female bee, tricking amorous male bees into mounting those flowers again and again. It is a pollination strategy defined by a technical botanical term that really requires no further explanation, pseudocopulation. It's outrageous, but true. These male bees are drawn into these alluring female bees. They, they don't think it's a flower. They think it's a bee. They think they're at the, you know, they think they're at the bar picking up a good date. Uh, and this goes on and on. And it's a brilliant strategy from the plant standpoint because they have a dedicated pollinator. Because the, the shape and particularly the smell is associated with only one species of bee. And so they know darn well that once that male lands on the flower and picks up some pollen, the only other flowers it's going to visit are of the same species. It's a brilliant, brilliant strategy. And there are dozens, scores of species of bee orchids in the world. So the relationship between bees and flowers involves no small amount of trickery and exploitation as well as reward. And it has led to great diversity on both sides. Now, we started off this evening with the question asked by four-year-olds, why? But it is also worth considering a question common to 14-year-olds, who cares? Also a very important question, who cares? Why should people care about bees? Because people do care. I hear all the time from people who are concerned about bee declines, which, if you think about it, is pretty unusual for an insect. Do you hear about flies in the news? Or cockroaches or earwigs? If so, then certainly not with fondness. I mean, let's face it, by and large, nobody trusts an exoskeleton. When science fiction authors and horror film directors need a terrifying go-to monster, there's a reason they don't go for puppies and panda bears. Time and again, they find inspiration in arthropods, the creepy crawlies, those invertebrates with soft, goopy bodies encased in a hard, chitinous exoskeleton. The mere sight of insects and spiders can trigger a measurable fear reaction in the human brain, and often synapses associated with disgust also light up. Psychologists believe these feelings are innate, evolutionary, that there is a deep sense of otherness about those brittle, segmented bodies. It's as if, even from a safe distance, we know that such creatures would give a sickening crunch if stepped upon. Yet throughout human history, in all sorts of contexts, we have made a special exception for bees. 
from breakfast cereal to beer to Saturday Night Live to bath products, bees get a pass on our fear of arthropods. To be clear, bees have exoskeletons. They have waving antennae like all the other insects. Many also have venomous stingers, and their babies look like maggots. They don't exactly hide their otherness. Yet in cultures around the world, people have put their natural fears aside to bond with bees, watching them, tracking them, taming them, studying them, writing poems and stories about them, and even worshiping them. No other group of insects has grown so close to us. None is more essential and none is more revered. Now, you might say, well, of course we like bees. Think, think of all the crops that they pollinate. Think of all the fruits and nuts and vegetables that, depending on how you parse the math, make up as much as a third of the hum, food in the human diet. Well, fair enough. But that can't be the whole story. Because we didn't even understand insect pollination until well into the 19th century. But our fondness for bees dates back millennia. To the ancients, they were the world's finest sources of both sweetness and of light in the form of bee wax candles, which were the, the finest form of light for thousands of years because the alternative was usually a, a, a tallow candle or a, a, a lamp burning some kind of animal fat which, if you've ever tried it, is a much stinkier alternative uh, to the clean floral scent of a beeswax candle. They were prized. They were also used, bees and bee products were used in medicine. Wax was used in waterproofing. Wax was used uh, as a writing surface. The first iPad, if you will, was made from beeswax, an erasable writing tablet, and even if that weren't enough, if they weren't useful enough, uh, in the form of mead, honey gave people one of their most reliable sources of intoxication. So it's no wonder that people kept bees long before they tamed horses, camels, or ducks, not to mention familiar crops like apples, oats, peas, watermelons, onions, even coffee, domesticated long after we had grown close to bees. Beekeeping as an art and a science dates at least to the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, where sophisticated clay hives were ferried up and down the Nile in time with seasonal wildflower balloons. And also to the pre-classical Mayan period, where uh, beekeepers had the good sense to tend uh, a species called royal ladies, which is a rainforest beer uh, with the agreeable trait of lacking a stinger. Bees show up again and again throughout recorded history, while traces of wax and honey show up everywhere from Neolithic pottery fragments to the world's oldest dental filling. But by one school of thought, our connection to bees shouldn't be measured in thousands of years, it should be measured in millions. A relationship with potential evolutionary consequences for our own species as well as that of a peculiar and particular African bird. This next story comes from chapter six of the book, and it begins with a quote from the Dutch Renaissance scholar Erasmus, who noted, no bees, no honey. And we're catching up with the narrative in South Africa, 
where I was skipping out, frankly, on a biology conference where I was supposed to be presenting some data. Uh, but I couldn't help myself. I was attempting to find native honeybees in their native habitat, uh, a shrubby habitat called the Finboss in South Africa. If I were writing a novel, this is the moment where I would tell you that a brownish, robin-sized bird landed on a twig nearby, chattering excitedly to get my attention. I would then describe how I followed that bird as it hopped and fluttered from branch to branch through the finboss, leading me directly to the bee's buzzing home. That didn't happen, but the strange thing is that it could have. The greater honey guide earned its name through exactly the behavior I just described, ushering people to beehives with boisterous hopping, flapping, and an incessant cry that bird books describe as The bird ranges widely across sub-Saharan Africa, and wherever it is found, traditional honey hunters have learned to rely on its unique talents. In one study, following honey guides increased the rate of bee nest discovery by 560%, and the birds consistently led hunters to colonies that were larger and more productive than the ones they discovered on their own. After a nest has been located and breached, the honey guide benefits by feasting on leftovers and scraps. Its specialized diet has resulted in an unusual ability to digest beeswax. As one early European observer noted, people customarily reward their avian helpers with a calculated gift of honeycomb. Quote, the bee hunters never fail to leave a small portion for their conductor, but commonly take care not to leave so much as would satisfy its hunger. The bird's appetite being only whetted by this parsimony, it is obliged to commit a second treason by discovering another bee's nest in hopes of a better salary. Although no honey guide materialized to help me in the finboss that, that afternoon, its habits are a commonplace, well known to ornithologists, and immortalized in one of the greatest scientific names of all time, Indicator Indicator. The first research paper on honey guides was read to a meeting of the Royal Society of London in December of 1776. It mentioned the bird's assumed natural counterpart, a mammalian hive raider called the Rattel or honey badger. For over two centuries, common and scientific wisdom maintained that guiding behavior evolved between bird and badger and that people had simply come along and learned to exploit it. It wasn't until the 1980s that a group of South African biologists pointed out what should have been obvious all along. Honey badgers are nocturnal. They are also nearsighted. They don't like climbing trees to the nests where the birds usually find uh, the, the, the bees. Honey, uh, the ratels dig up nests from the ground. So their waking hours do overlap briefly with honey guides at dusk and at dawn, but that hardly seems like a good starting place for coevolution, particularly for a relationship so complex. While that myth persists, in natural history articles, and even a best-selling children's book, finding the real story behind honey guide behavior required biologists to go knocking on doors in an entirely different department of science. To track down the origin of the honey guide story, I spoke with nutritional anthropologist Alyssa Crittenden 
at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who made a remarkable discovery about the Hadza people of Tanzania, a group still living a traditional hunting and gathering lifestyle in the very landscape where our ancestors, uh, our whole species, is thought to have evolved. The Hadza are honey hunters, and they do follow honey guides. This has been known for decades. But Alyssa was the first person to ask a basic question. How much honey do the Hadza eat? And the answer was surprising. Honey wasn't just an occasional treat. Men, women, and children all ranked it as their favorite food, and they looked for it every single day, raiding the nests not just of honeybees, but of at least six other honey-making varieties. Over the course of a year, honey made up fully 15% of the Hadza diet, a figure far higher during certain seasons and higher still for the men who did most of the collecting and had a habit of eating quite a lot of the honey before they got back to camp. Now that's interesting in and of itself, but the idea becomes truly powerful in an evolutionary context because Alyssa and her colleagues then posed another question. Would our ancestors, surviving in roughly the same way in the same landscape, have behaved any differently? After all, chimpanzees eat honey, so why not Homo erectus, Homo habilis, even Australopithecus? If we have been chasing bees since the start, that certainly explains the coevolution of honey guides. Why would a bird bother trying to attract the attention of a nearsighted nocturnal badger when there were big bipedal apes out there in plain sight scouring the savanna for bee nests all day long? But for Elissa and her colleagues, the bird is a side note. The real discovery has to do with us. Because the story of human evolution has always been a story about brain size. And the brain is what physiologists like to call metabolically expensive. It takes a lot of energy to run it. Up to 20% of our daily calories go to feed something that for most of us makes up only about 2% of our body weight. So if you want to evolve a bigger brain, then you need more fuel. And as Alyssa told me, honey is the most energy-rich food in nature. And much of that energy comes in the form of glucose, which is what the brain burns. If you eat something else, your body will turn it into glucose to feed your brain. And here it is, straight from the source in honey. Another, another paragraph from chapter 6. Like hunting animals, finding honey provided our ancestors with a rich nutritional reward for completing a complex task. It would have created a similar impetus for the development of cooperation and sharing as well as tool use and the mastery of fire. Hand axes and flakes and other stone implements that did indeed lead to efficiencies in killing and butchering game, but so too would they have allowed access to the larger bee nests hidden in trees. And while fire may have given us a nutritional boost through cooking, it would have also allowed the pacification of honeybees with smoke. If our ancestors did indeed search for honey as regularly as the Hadza do today, then each of these advances would have been accompanied by a huge surge in sugary calories. Taken together, these dietary contributions make a strong case that learning to follow bees and honey guides influenced human evolution, helping our ancestors to bolster their growing brains and in the language of anthropology, nutritionally outcompete other species. So there's some food for thought. 
Could it be that our primordial sweet tooth led us to bees and to their honey, helping ultimately to make us who we are? What a tantalizing notion that is. So if I were giving this presentation 100 years ago, I would stop now and take your questions. Even 50 years ago or 25 years ago, I might not need to say another word. But in the 21st century, it is impossible to talk about bees without confronting the challenges that they face. Colony collapse disorder appeared on the scene in 2006, decimating honeybee hives across North America and Europe and setting off a mad research scramble to understand why. I spoke with a bee scientist named Diane Cox Foster, who has been studying colony collapse since the very beginning. She helped coin the phrase, and she told me something surprising. Over the past several years, colony collapse disorder has almost disappeared. It now accounts for less than 5% of lost hives, yet professional beekeepers continue to lose 30 per to 40% of their hives every single year. And studies of native wild bees have also shown steep declines for many species, including what were once the most common bumblebees in Seattle, the western bumblebee, now almost extinct across much of its former range. So what began as an investigation of a particular malady affecting one species has grown into a grave concern about what may be affecting all bees. And after more than a decade of research, perhaps only one thing is certain. It's more than one thing. There is no single factor, no smoking gun responsible for bee declines. They are suffering from what some specialists have begun calling multiple stress disorder. Diane summarizes those stressors as the four Ps. Parasites, like the deadly varroa mite that attaches itself to adult bees and larvae and feeds on their body fluids. Pesticides, like the notorious neonicotinoids. Pathogens, including a host of viruses, bacteria, fungi, and finally, poor nutrition, which means the simple scarcity of flowers in our increasingly industrially farmed and urbanized landscapes. There's just not much out there for bees to eat. You add climate change and invasive species to the mix, and things get even more complicated, particularly since all of these factors have the potential to interact. A pesticide that passes bee-safe tests in a lab can become deadly in a field that has also been sprayed with a fungicide or an herbicide. Or a virus that a bee hardly notices when it's healthy can kill it if it is stressed by a, a, a parasite or by poor nutrition. British bumblebee expert David Golson told me the issue really boils down to a crisis of bee health. As he put it, bees are starving, diseased, and poisoned. Small wonder they aren't thriving. But then he went on to give me the good news. In spite of the complexity of the problems and the challenges of the research, we already know enough to take action, and to take action in very specific ways. By providing more flowers and nesting habitat, by reducing pesticide use, and by stopping the transportation of, of domesticated bees from place to place because their pathogens and parasites travel with them. Putting these straightforward ideas into practice can be transformational, and the best news is that anyone can do it. You can do it. You can help bees with a window box, 
You can help them in your backyard, your garden, or on your farm. It can be as simple as drilling holes in a block of wood or as satisfying as choosing to plant flowers that don't require spraying. And if you do this, you will experience something that can be pretty darn unusual in the world of conservation biology, instant gratification. Uh, the other week, I purchased uh, uh, some, what's it called, cat mint. Do you, are you familiar with this purple mint, flowering mint thing? That, man, that's the, that's the ticket. I saw it at the hardware store. I'm putting that right in front of my office. I got home, and before I could even plant it, there were bees on it. Instant gratification. To borrow a phrase from one field and apply it to another, if you build it, they will come. Towards the end of my research for the book, I put that notion to the test by spending a day in the field uh, with someone from the Xerces Society, which is a wonderful conservation group based in Portland, uh, based in Portland, and they do work around North America. We were down in the Central Valley of California in the almond groves. Uh, and so this is one of the most industrially farmed places in the world. But even there, with all original habitat gone, and with pesticides of all description being used on a grand scale, we saw wild bees that had immediately colonized uh, a, a hedgerow of native wildflowers planted by one of the almond growers. We saw this wonderful little sweat bee on a gumweed. The most hopeful bee I saw over two years of research. And more and more farmers are doing this. Over 10,000 acres of almond groves now have native plants uh, for bee habitat. After all, what's not to like? They get better pollination from something that's pretty to look at. Eric told me that he summarizes his work with, with bees and flowers this way. I like to think I'm handing people a beautiful painting for their wall, one they didn't even know existed. In a moment, I will be happy to take your questions, but first I want to conclude uh, with a short passage from the preface to the book, from the beginning. And I think it is appropriate to end at the start because while we may have a long history with bees, we're still just at the beginning of understanding their biology, just at the begin beginning of understanding our dependence upon them, and still at the very beginning of doing what we can to help bring them back. This then from the preface, which begins with an epigraph from Henry David Thoreau. There are certain pursuits which, if not wholly poetic and true, do at least suggest a nobler and finer relation to nature than what we know. The keeping of bees, for instance, is like directing the sunbeams. Bees today certainly need our help, but just as importantly, they need our curiosity. Exploring the history and biology of these essential creatures can transform anyone into an enthusiast, and that is the purpose of this book. But I hope you will do more than read it. I hope it makes you want to go straight outside on the next sunny day, find a bee on a flower, and settle down to watch. If you do, you just might find yourself daring to reach out and catch that bee, the same way my young son has done since the age of three, barehanded. Try this, and you too can feel the tickle of tiny feet and the whispery rustle of wings on your palm before you slowly part your fingers, hold the bee up, and set it free. Thank you all very much. 
I would be happy to take questions at this time, and I do hope you have them. Burning bee questions that must be answered before you could possibly rest. Yes, right in the front. So I, I see bees flying around, and there can be mess of bees. Mm. And how do they know which flowers are going to be dry? Ah, that's a fabulous question. How much time do you have? Okay, there are lots of cool ways uh, that flowers give off uh, cues, but one of the, the very best, and one that was only discovered within the last couple of years, uh, has to do with uh, electric fields, right? So a bee, if you imagine a bumblebee flying through the air with all that fuzz, it picks up a positive charge in the same way that you know rubbing a balloon on your head will make a charge, right? So the bumblebee flying around gets a positive charge. And flowers attached to the earth which has a slight negative charge, uh, are negatively charged, right? So when a bumblebee lands on a flower, there are a couple of things that happen. One is a marvelous exchange because opposites attract. And the negatively charged pollen clings to the positively charged bee. But the other thing that happens is that by visiting with its positive charge, the bumblebee alters temporarily, the electric field of the blossom. And so the next bee coming along can sense that that flower has recently been stripped of its rewards. What a fabulous, fabulous, and, and imagine what it feels like for the bee, because it's the hairs. It's through the hairs that they feel it. They, they approach a flower, and the, the tips of all those fuzzy bumblebee hairs stretch out slightly towards that negative charge. Isn't that fabulous? And if they're not stretching out, then psh, that flower's not worth the effort. So that's one of, of the ways they do it. Yeah. Other questions? Yes, Gary. Uh, I have two. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, have to do with um, your experiences. The first one, I was sitting in my backyard, and I happened to have a rose bush. And on this rose bush was a spider, a spider web. And so where I'm going with this is, I think bees have a consciousness. I saw this thing flying and tantalizing the spider, saying, I can break through this web. You're nothing. And the spider was there like, you get closer to me. But this bee was felt immortal. And it was like, so I am convinced that there's more to life in these things than just run from point A to point B and then back home and so forth. So I'd like some experience with that, is my first question, yeah. if you have any more about consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Can I address that one first, and yes. then we'll come to the next one? So I can't speak specifically to consciousness, but I know that um, a lot of studies are done on bee brains, and then on how bees cooperate as groups, social bees, to understand group thinking. Uh, so there is a great deal going on there, like you say, beyond simply going from point A to point B first part. Second part, you have witnessed a, an ancient uh, enmity between bees and spiders because spiders are key and, and deadly bee predators. Sp spiders, particularly crab spiders, will sit on a blossom and some of them are camouflaged, same color as the petal, and they sit and wait. And you might have seen them there and think, well, what are they getting? They're getting bees in many cases. The bees come in, and you, you can see this in action. You saw a, 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 what sounds almost like a bee teasing a spider, which I love. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, you can see spiders grabbing bees. You can find bees dead on flowers that have been killed and sucked dry by spiders. 
I had a, a mason bee on one of our bee blocks this year, uh, and the, the spider had the bee by the head. And the bee was dead, and the spider was having a, a, a grand time with its big fat meal. The bee was bigger than the spider! Um, so that's the second part of it. And I'm going to get back to your question, but I'm getting worked up, as you can see, because this is cool. Um, so think about, then, again, this difference between wasps and bees, and this gets at something uh, really interesting. Uh, you know, the bee lifestyle, when they made that vegetarian switch, they, they suddenly diversified, and the flowers diversified. It was a great move. It worked out really well. And one of the reasons is because, aside from spiders, think about how safe it is to go and collect nectar or pollen. You, the, the flower wants you to have it. It's giving it to you. It wants you to have it. It tastes good. It's nutritious. Uh, and, and so bees ha came up with what, in a sense, was kind of an easy lifestyle compared to their wasp ancestors who were hunters and who were trying to kill things like spiders and take them back to the nest. So the hunting lifestyle was inherently more dangerous because if you're a, a wasp attacking a spider, that's a real fight. And if you tear a wing, you're done. You know, so the, uh, the difference in lifestyle uh, is really interesting to think about. And part of the reason bees did so well, I believe, is because they chose a safer path. Now, the second part of your question. Thank you so much for yeah. that. And the second one was um, your experience in Central America when you were doing your doctorate. Do you have any Humboldtian experiences from that, um, Alexander Van? Humboldt is um, a figure that I like to read about, and mm -hmm. of course, um, well, I was just hoping perhaps there might be something down there indigenous to that area that had to do with that, but that's kind of far-reaching. Well, it's far-reaching, but what I can share with you just personally, part of what draws me back again and again to the tropics, um, it, these rainforests with the, the, the concentration of diversity that they have are... Uh, just absolutely fascinating to any of us who have an interest in nature. And one of the best ways to experience I've learned over the years is to go out at night with a flashlight. And the reason is, if you go out during the day in one of these forests, it's overwhelming. All of the diversity of plant life and the, and the sounds of the, of the creatures and this great diversity that you encounter. You go out at night and you have a flashlight beam. And all you can see is one narrow little place. And somehow that gives you a guide to that forest because you can see things one by one and absorb them. And for me personally, it's not really a Humboldtian moment, but one great way to gain insight into tropical rainforests is through the beam of a flashlight, narrowing my vision. Yeah. Other questions, bees or otherwise? Yes, Sean. So when a bee goes out for pollen, do they feel heavy and then they go back to where their home is to deposit it? And how many times do you think they do that? Maybe it depends on each bee style. Yeah, oh, it's a great question. So how many pollen trips, you know, does it make to, to, uh, uh, for a bee? Well, it depends. It depends. Now, for the social bees, like the, the uh, honeybees and the bumblebees that have a nest full of sisters and they're raising up, uh, and they have a queen and they're raising up a whole Thanks big Thanks for streaming this episode of uh, Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Collecting pollen because Thor Hansen is the author more. of Buzz, uh, and the Nature up, and know, Necessity uh, of Bees. And also he gave this talk at the uh, L.A. Bay Book Company on July 14th. Thank you to KUOW's Sonia Harris for our recording. We present what we can in our podcast hour. 
To hear the full event, go to our website, kuow.org. While you're there, check out other great Seattle area talks, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Tune in again soon. Of work to do. The males do nothing. The males breed, they mate, and do nothing else. Sorry, guys. We are sort of expendable in the bee world. but the, the women are extremely important, the, the mama bees, and they go out and they not only are gathering pollen trip after trip, but they're gathering nectar because they tend to mix it to make a ball or a slurry uh, for their babies to eat. And what they do is build either in the ground in a tunnel or in a hollow twig or a snail shell or whatever it ha- happens to be. They will build a little cell, a little chamber, uh, and they'll f- start filling it with what they call bee bread, or if it's soupy, sometimes they call it bee pudding, which I've always thought sounded marvelous. A spoonful of bee pudding for me, please. Uh, So they do this. They fill the cell, and then they lay a single egg on top, and then they close that cell off, and they make a new cell, and they do it again. And they do that over and over again. So they're they're provisioning with, with the pollen and the nectar. They're also building. And if they're building the cell with leaves, if it's a leaf cutter bee, their trips also have to include trips for pieces of leaf. If they're building with mud, then their trips have to be to a source of dirt or wet soil. And oftentimes, their trips also have to include uh, a a whole stomach full of water to mix with soil to get it to the right texture. So it's a very complicated and labor-intensive process for those bees you know, to get it done. So I don't know how many trips it takes, but it's not just the pollen. The point is it's just constant until they finish that off. And for, a, you know, the average sort of solitary bee, they might put six or eight of those cells into a single nest. And if they're really vigorous, they might do that twice over the course of their life, and then they're exhausted, absolutely exhausted. There was a true story, not this season, but a, a year ago, I had drilled... If you ever see someone wandering around their backyard with a six-inch drill bit, you know it's a bee freak. I drill holes in everything trying to get bees to nest. Anyway, I had this whole fresh block, bee block. It was toward the end of the mason bee season. But our flowers uh, in the orchard, the, the apple trees, were still blooming. And there were still a few mason bees around. Uh, so I put this thing out in a prime spot, surrounded by trees. And I found a little female mason bee. Uh, and, I, and I got her, and I put her right on top of the... A block, and here you go. And she, I, she walked over to the edge, and I know I'm personifying a little bit, but she peered over the edge, and here's this big row of empty holes, and she just toppled off dead into the grass. <laughs> it was just too depressing. So they really do; they just wear themselves out in, until they can't go any farther. Uh, uh, it's, it, but a fascinating lifestyle. And in terms of the expendability of the males, you can see it in how those mama bees build their nests. Because the the interior cells of the nest are the most protected. If the woodpecker is going to come along or some other predator, it's going to hit the exterior cells first. So the deepest ones are the safest. And they put big provisions in there and they lay female eggs on those. Because bees, unlike so many creatures in the world, ourselves included, have the ability to predetermine the sex of their children. Uh, so they'll put the, the, by doling out or not doling out, uh, the sperm that they have stored from a mating event earlier in their adult life. Uh, so anyway, they put a female uh, egg on that big pile, and they do a couple of those, maybe three, 
floor. And as they get out towards the entrance, where things are a little bit less dodgy, they start putting in smaller loads of pollen, and it's a little bit sloppier, and that's where they put the male eggs. Because <laughs> as long as a few of those guys survive, it's going to be fine. But the real money it goes into those female, uh, those female eggs. Yes, in the back. Mm -hmm. So why, a wonderful question. Why is that? And it's true, but it, it, what, uh, the answer revolves around the diversity of plants and the diversity of bees. Because if you imagine how different flowers are, from one another. Uh, oftentimes, there are, they're designed, in a sense, uh, for bees of a particular size and shape. And so certain bees might visit those flowers, drink nectar, and never touch the flower parts because they're too small or too big. Or other bees might come and they might chew a hole in the base of the flower and drink the nectar and never get in there to uh, touch the flower parts and do the pollinating. So the reason that mason bees are so efficient is they're the perfect size for apple blossoms and related blossoms which are in the rose family and include things you know like our plums and cherries and what have you. Uh, and for the bees they're just the right size and their behavior in that flower ensures that they touch the pollen, uh, they touch the stamens where they're gathering, they touch the, the uh, stigmas, the female parts, uh, and they behave in such a way that they move from flower to flower and they do a fabulous job of pollinating. Honeybees also are pollinators of apples and, and other fruits, but they're much less efficient. So if you want to do the job, you can get it done with a lot fewer mason bees than honeybees. With honeybees, they'll do it, but you've got to swamp it with honeybees because they get in there, uh, they're not, their habits aren't quite right and their shape isn't quite right to do it well. They do it, but not nearly as efficiently. So it ha that's what, I mean, and it's very specific. We talked about those absurd uh, bee orchids, you know, to show a real extreme. Um, but there are many other situations where particular bees are required really, to pollinate efficiently particular flowers. As many as 8% of the world's flowers uh, have what they call porocytal anthers. And the anther is the chamber where the pollen is, is created and stored. Uh, and most of the time, for the rest of the flowers, those chambers open up and, the, and there's the, the pollen is there for the taking. But things like uh, tomatoes and potatoes in the, in the nightshade family or things like salal and blueberries in the heath, the heather family, uh, they hold tight to that pollen. It is trapped inside the chamber, accessible only by a teeny hole in one end. And to get it out, bees either have to try to stick a leg up in there to pry a little bit out, or they can do what certain bees have, have, have learned to do quite well. Bumblebees can do it, digger bees can do it, and some others. And what they do is they vibrate their wings at a certain frequency, just like a tuning fork. And they cling to that anther, vibrate their wings, and the anther resonates and sprays the pollen out onto their body. So if you don't have those kinds of bees, you can't get efficient pollination of those plants, which is why bumblebees are used to increase fruit set in uh, 
inside of greenhouses where they're growing greenhouse tomatoes. Because they, you, know, you can get some self-pollination, but if you, you can shake the bush too and that will help. Or you can go around with an electric toothbrush and touch every flower every day. But if you want to do it most efficiently, you let loose bumblebees in there and they get the job done beautifully. And you can see this, you can experience this at a flower of this type. Uh, just sit down and watch and when you see a bumblebee come, you'll, it'll come buzzing in, it'll land and you'll hear and it'll go to the next flower land and off it goes. And it's buzz pollinating those flowers. There are some uh, bees in Australia that also uh, <laughs> whack their head into the anther really fast to get the, the uh, they, they vibrate and hammer, it's like a head banging kind of uh, motion uh, that also apparently helps shake some of that pollen out. Fabulous stuff. Yes? Yeah, so that's a great question. Can the bees adapt to us? And some bees can. In fact, there are some very intriguing studies coming out now about bees in urban areas and suburban areas. One where they looked at bee diversity and abundance across uh, a landscape from the agricultural areas outside of the city of London all the way into the center. And what they found was that, in fact, bee diversity went up when they hit the city. Because out in the ag fields where uh, they were applying pesticides and where uh, we have great monocultures grown uh, that might flower you know, for three weeks out of the year and then they're a desert for bees, right? And we're even now so efficient with our herbicides that there aren't even that many thistles around for bees to eat anymore in those landscapes. So it's, it's a bit of a desert. But when they came into areas where people had backyard gardens and a great diversity of flowers and flowers that lasted over a long period of time, because people with their flower gardens, they don't want it all done in three weeks. You want a flower garden that's beautiful from May to October. Uh, they found, in fact, greater diversity and abundance of bees in some of those areas versus the countryside. So one of the take-home lessons from that in terms of changing our behavior involves changing particularly uh, how we farm. And it's, it's worth asking, you know, will the future farms, if we're going to save bees, will future farms perhaps look a lot like farms of the past, where they had more hedgerows, where they might have been less efficient, but they were much more diverse in their habitat for bees. Many crops grown in proximity uh, and, and hedgerows of plants that flower all the time uh, so that bees have a diversity of floral resources and then a diversity of uh, unplowed habitats where they can build their nests. Right? We've become so efficient in some of these uh, single crop fields that we farm from the very edge where the road goes by to the very other edge where the other road goes by and there's nothing left untrammeled for digger bees or uh, other bees to nest. Uh, so that's one of the take-homes. Can we change those practices? If we do, and the more that we do, and some farms are, uh, and, and the results are, are transformational. Yeah. Other questions? Yes, Gary. Um, I actually grew up in the Midwest in North Dakota, mm. which at uh, one point was number two in the United States in honey. However, my question is, is that um, if you ever lived in the upper Midwest, 
you really only have two seasons, a very long seven-month cold winter yeah. and five months of summer, and about two weeks of spring and two weeks of fall. Right. But I find that these bees can acclimate to these temperature variations extremely much more prolific uh, and more hardy than I had anticipated. And I was wondering if, um, well, if that's just regional in that area, and uh, or is that, I mean, I'm sure over in Tibet or somewhere over there, they got, uh, that's a little bit higher altitude, but uh, you have these vast temperature variations as opposed to here, it's very mild. So is the diversity of the bees in those kind of cultures more significant or less because of the the extremes, yeah. So there are there are bees virtually anywhere that there are flowers, all the way up north of the Arctic Circle, where the the whole season might play out in three weeks, and there is a native species of bumblebee there that can do it. She can do it, and she the bumblebee queen emerges in that brief spring starts gathering her nectar and her pollen and starts pumping uh, uh, body fluids that she has heated by shivering her flight muscles down into her abdomen, incubating her eggs before she even has a nest to get things moving fast. So that when she does find some wholesome place to start a colony, she's already working. Uh, and so it goes fast. They don't have you know, prolific numbers, but she might have half a dozen, a dozen or more daughters in the, the, the few generations she can raise up. And they, 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 they gather enough energy in that hive, you know, in, 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 the, in the form of nectar and pollen to, to raise up another queen or two or three for the next season and a couple of drones for a mating flight. And then it's all over. In a month, it's all over. And it's successful enough there so that there are, there's even one species of parasitic bumblebee, uh, a cuckoo bumblebee, that follows these queens around and will take over her nest uh, towards the end and lay its own eggs uh, for the queen for the next generation. Fabulous stuff. So it can happen in these very ex extremes of temperature. Bees are happiest and most diverse where it's hot and dry. So we often think of you know, tropical rainforests as the centers of, of terrestrial diversity, like the coral reefs are the centers of aquatic diversity. Uh, but it's really the um, deserts and near deserts where bees are most diverse. You have 1,300 species of bees known from the state of Arizona, for example. Uh, and they have a flowering period that may be brief, but the conditions are fantastic for bees. It's hot all the time. So these are cold-blooded creatures and they can fly. They get long days of flight. When the flowers are there, they can do a lot of gathering. Because it is a dry habitat, there's a lot of bare ground for nesting and uh, as well as twigs and, and other, uh, you know, molten, uh, vole holes and, and pocket gopher holes and things where they can nest. Uh, and because it's dry all year, by and large, there are some monsoons, but it's quite dry year-round, they're less susceptible to the fungal diseases that often infect the nests, right? So if you go and get commercial, uh, commercially, uh, your mason bees, for example, oftentimes they're raising up mason bees in the southwest where they get a much higher return on those bees and then selling them in places like the northwest where 
or mason bees, you know, they survive naturally, but the, the, the die-off over the winter is much higher for our local wet country bees than it is for those dry ones down there. Yeah, so that's where bees are most diverse. But they will thrive anywhere that you have flowers in some form or another. Other questions? Okay, one more, yeah. So are there any species that have males that do more than just mates? <laughs> no. <laughs> 20,000 species. Is anyone familiar with P.G. Wodehouse, the author? You've read the, the uh, Bertie Wooster and Jeeves, uh, and you may remember that Bertie Wooster, this young layabout gentleman with nothing to do, is a member of a social club, and it's called the Drones Club. And I don't know if P.G. Wodehouse was a beekeeper, but I have a feeling he knew something about bees because it's the perfect description for those young males with nothing to do. The, uh, in, in bees, the males are, they, they have no stinger, so they can't help defend, right? The stinger evolved from the egg-laying device of the females. So they're, they're not good for nest defense. Uh, and they don't gather pollen because it's not their problem, how are you going to feed the kids? Uh, and so they don't even have the long hairs on their legs or their bellies that, where the pollen is stored. They're much smoother. Well, sometimes they're actually quite fuzzy, but they're not, they don't have what they call the scopa or the corbicula or these other various things where you can, get, you can store pollen. So they can't really carry pollen very well, and they wouldn't know what to do with it if they did gather it. Uh, so really, they are they're mating machines. That's what. And and in a social uh, colony like a bumblebee colony, they don't even make males until late into the season, right? Uh, you know, so it's it's all females until there's enough energy there, and they're going to start making some queens. Then they'll make some males. Uh, so we're starting to see drone bumblebees uh, now. Which, if you do want to do that trick of catching a bee in your hand, that's your best bet. Get a drone. <laughs> Thank you all so much. I'm going to hang out in the back and sign books and answer questions for as long as you like. I really appreciate your, your attention and, and being here tonight. Thank you.